We are so excited to announce that the second edition of Tamina Watson's book, The Startup Visa, Key to Job Growth and Economic Prosperity in America, is now out for order. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get your books. You can do so by searching The Startup Visa Book or by finding Tamina Watson's author page on Amazon or online. That is spelled T-A-H-M-I-N-A-W-A-T-S-O-N. Thank you so much for your support and for tuning in to this episode. Just before I start speaking with you, I want to introduce you to our listeners and viewers. Um, Pete Chase is the CEO of Columbia International Finance. He brings um, international capital um, to economic development projects in Washington State. Economic development in his home state is a passion for Pete with the company's goal to support the funding needs of job producing endeavors. The former co-founder and CEO of Purcell Systems Pete launched Purcell Systems in 2000 as a supplier of integrated telecommunication enclosures and oversaw its growth to a profitable global operation with annual revenue of over $140 million a year um, and 170 employees. Uh, Pete earned the 2006 Entrepreneur of the Year Award from Ernest & Young for achievement in the communications industry. Read more about his amazing achievements on, on his website, Pete. It's such a pleasure to see you again. I know we were actually doing the webinar yesterday and we had talked about it at our show uh, last week. And I hope if you're, if you're tuned in just now, thank you so much. If you, just, if you did tune in to our webinar yesterday, thank you so much. Um, you know, if you, if you have questions and comments that, were, that you, you think of from last week's show or the webinar, uh, you're very welcome to email us at info at Watson Immigration Law so that I can pass those questions to Pete if you're not able to contact us today but you know it's it's interesting um, you know it's the EB5 uh, program was not so much of a, uh, an interest in the South Asian community until recently and you yourself probably didn't realize how important the South Asian community would feel that the EB5 is so what, what happened well, it's, it is interesting, um, especially when I started hearing the individual stories of people who found DB5 um, uh, from South Asia and saw it as an opportunity to get around the quagmire of H1B and to listen to their individual stories about, you know, here, these, these people have been here for seven to ten years, they are part of our community, they pay taxes, their kids play soccer, and here they are faced with this really untenable situation. So being able to hear their personal stories and to help them understand the EB-5 program a little bit more and, and possibly help guide them is, uh, it's been a pleasant surprise. I wish it wasn't as difficult for everyone, but uh, whatever we can do to help, we're very interested. You know, you, you mentioned the H-1B quagmire. So, uh, you know, some listeners perhaps don't understand what's going on, but uh, the background to the problems that we're seeing now are the EB-5, sorry, the green card backlog, particularly for Indian citizens. Uh, and on top of that, the H-1B that allows somebody to stay here year after year is suddenly being questioned by the administration to such an ex- extent that some H-1Bs are, are either getting denied or getting stuck at administrative processing and second and secondly the h4ead is of big concern so these two things are making people revisit why uh, how how they could have options to stay here and if their h1bs are not going to be renewed 
they simply cannot stay here, even if they are in the green card backlog. So, um, what has um, so some people might be very new to the EB5 world, and you have a regional center. Maybe you can tell them a little bit more about it. Sure. Um, after uh, my years at Purcell Systems, this Hollywood company, I was very interested in getting into economic development, uh, especially as it pertained to the type of development being created by uh, immigrant uh, entrepreneurs. And so. Even though H-1B is a, a temporary, hopefully, temporary situation, and actually so is EB-5, my goal was to be able to work with people as they became uh, permanent residents and started their own companies and created their own uh, kind of ripple effect of economic development. So I came across EB-5, and it's an interesting period of time for EB-5 right now. Um, up until just recently, about 80 plus percent of the investments come from China. Uh, there's because of a huge backlog on EB-5 visas for Chinese uh, residents, that backlog is, is way out there. And so it, it, in a way, it provides an opportunity for people from other countries to come in with an EB-5 investment and attain uh, residency in about four years. You know, uh, regional centers have been in the news often. And one of the things that we hear and hear from our clients uh, is where do I invest? How do we even begin? Um, what would you say to some of those people? Well, um, you know, the, the immigration element aside, they need to approach it just like they would any other investment and really do their due diligence. Uh, if they have trusted advisors, uh, their immigration attorney, tax advisors, business attorneys, uh, utilize um, your contacts to help you be able to look at all the projects that are out there uh, and the, the background of the regional center, the developer who's actually creating the, the jobs, and do your normal due diligence that you normally would. Okay, and um, so when due diligence, what are, what are the things they're looking at? Well, typically, um, I think there are some important elements when they're looking at projects, one of which is the background and the track record of the actual developer, the uh, team that the regional center has in place that is acting as the middleman between the investment group and the developer. Um, an important element is to see how much EB-5 investment is part of the overall content of the development project. If you see where EB-5 money is probably 40% or more, that's a real red flag because you know that without that money, the project can't go on and then that jeopardizes really everyone's uh, potential for permanent residency. Oh, that's very, very interesting. So 40% of the entire project. So, they, And this information would be available to, to uh, potential investors to see? Oh yes, every project that they would look at would need to be very clear on what uh, percentage of the capital stack the EB-5 money represents. And more importantly, how is that money going to be returned to the investors? Very good question to piggyback, uh, piggyback on from that is uh, people will say, how am I going to get my money returned? Now, from an immigration perspective, the money should be at risk. There should be no promise of the money being returned. However, people uh, would expect the investment to do well. And um, there are models of how they invest and there are terms, perhaps, of how much time the money would be uh, tied up. So perhaps you could address both those questions. You know, what kind of investment are they making and when would they see those returns? Well, there's two basic types of uh, regional center models, one of which is an equity model where the uh, money comes in as pure equity into a project and like any other equity investment, you really don't see your money back until there's some sort of an exit uh, for that particular project. 
The other model is a loan model, and that's the one that, that we utilize to where the money does come in as, a, as an equity investment, but then we lend that money to the developer during the course of that construction project. So in that loan model, typically the money is returned at the end of construction to the regional center. The regional center then needs to be very careful and work with each investor to ensure that that investment stays at risk mm -hmm. um, through their, their immigration path. Oh, interesting, interesting. So, um, when would, uh, in, in this process, as far as you're concerned, when do they see their money return to them? Well, that definitely depends upon the immigration path per country. So, right now, many of the Chinese investors uh, really will not see a return on that capital until they get through their entire immigration path. And, and because of the uh, retrogression backlog that is there, that now is estimated to be probably uh, 10 to 12 years. Uh, Non-Chinese investors, including uh, uh, folks who typically are here on H-1B visa, can expect to see that probably in about oh, four to five years. Or so. Four to five years. So for our, our listeners and viewers, um, anybody from India and perhaps other countries, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, so all the South Asian countries, people might be listening today, uh, their, their money would be perhaps tied up for about four to five years. Right, and something else that comes up too is, uh, it's a reasonable question, but many times investors want to know what their return on that investment is. Mm -hmm. Typically it's very low, because one of the tenets of the EB-5 program was to provide low-cost uh, money to developers in place of typical mezzanine debt that's out there. So if you see a regional center project that's promising great high returns to the investor, that's also another red flag, because it, it just shows how desperate they are for that money, and uh, you know, the, the investor needs to be cognizant of that. So our listeners and viewers are perhaps, some of them might be new to EB-5s. What does the mezzanine debt mean, you just mentioned here? Well, so typically, uh, when a developer is going to build a, a large construction project, they take out a construction loan at a certain rate, they put in their own equity, and then there's usually gap financing that makes up the rest of it, since you can only uh, typically get maybe 70% of the construction loan. So in the past, this, this mezzanine debt or gap financing was extremely expensive. So that's where uh, developers really like EB-5 because EB-5 money is typically brought in at a much, much lower rate. I see, wonderful. Well, you know, listeners and viewers, if you have questions and comments and you want to reach Pete, um, he's always happy to meet people in person, is that correct? Sure, I, uh, although I'm in Spokane, I do come over to Seattle quite often and we do have employees here that will show you the project and actually have you meet the developer if that's something you'd like to do. And if they want to contact you, how would they do that? Uh, anyone can contact us through our website, which is www.cifwa.com, or they can certainly call us at 509-951-1107. Uh, We'd be happy to uh, discuss your questions or meet with you personally. Can you please repeat the website and the number again? Yes, it's www.cif. So Columbia International Finance, CIFWA.com, and the number is 509-951-1107. Uh, thank you. So uh, if you've just tuned in, this is Tamina Talks Immigration on Radio Punjab, live from our studio in Seattle, and I have my wonderful guest, Pete Chase. He is the CEO of Columbia International Finance Regional Center that deals with EB-5 visa program. Um, you know, one of the questions that people have is, what is an admin fee? And, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's probably, um, you 
you know, one of those things to where people see the $500,000 investment, then they start seeing other fees associated with it. So there is that $500,000 investment. Uh, there's typically then also what they would uh, pay their immigration attorney uh, for advice in that area. There are also some filing fees directly with the USCIS, and uh, that information is available uh, right now through the, through the USCIS website. There's also what's called an admin fee, and that's a fee charged by the regional center for covering the cost of processing uh, that paperwork. Now, typically, many people see um, a price of an admin fee out there of fifty to $60,000, which is fairly high. Um, and typically, that is used to pay middlemen who are bringing the investors to the regional center. And these middlemen can be migration agents in uh, home countries, they can be broker-dealers, whatever it may be. If we're dealing directly with the investor, the admin fee is actually much less, around 15000 Okay, wonderful. You know, I, I tell all um, investors that the $500,000 is actually the legally mandated amount that needs to be invested. And they have to think about the costs outside the 500. So I typically tell my clients and anybody who wants to speak to me about it to set aside almost 100,000, which they might not need at all, but to just put that aside for the cost that will come up for the two year period, because at the beginning they'll have costs and then they file their green card, they sit around, they get, um, you know, it's two years, and then they have to file for their permanent green card and there'll be costs associated. So while 100,000 is way more than they would actually need, I feel like if they budgeted that, they wouldn't have any shortfalls or surprises later on. Yeah, I completely agree. It's a good cushion to have. And um, yeah, you just don't want to be surprised halfway through the immigration process of not being able to uh, pay one of those fees. Um, yeah, and I'm so glad you agree with that. You know, it's often, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of money already, but what you have seen some people already uh, find creative ways of investing in the EB-5 program. They're not necessarily swimming in money, but they have been creative. And uh, I believe in one of our previous conversations, you mentioned that one of your uh, investors who um, was perhaps from a South Asian country had uh, got a HELOC on his um, 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 house, or could you explain a little bit more? Sure, well, one of the uh, side benefits, I guess, of, of potentially being in a, in a uh, environment like Seattle where housing costs have gone up is some of the folks here on H-1 visas uh, invested in a home seven to ten years ago, that home is appreciated in value, there's now enough value to be able to take out a loan against that mortgage, um, you know, to go ahead and afford the $500,000. So that's uh, good news. The, the bad news is that that amount, as we are all watching the industry um, and, and the different uh, administrative rules come out, could increase significantly over the next few months. And when that is, we don't know. But we've heard numbers between 850,000 and up to 1.3 million, which, if that's the case, and it really does go that direction, that's a whole other um, situation of taking a HELOC out of your house. So, um, right now, the minimum investment is 500,000. Correct. Um, but the government has um, put a deadline of September 30th uh, when they will review whether that minimum goes up. Is that right? That's true uh, officially, but in between now and then, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration does have the right uh, to potentially raise that on their own. And, and everyone in the industry is trying to figure that out, but no one really knows when that could take place. 
Well, it seems like there's a lot of interest in raising the, the minimum to a higher amount. It's, what do you think is preventing them from doing that? Um, I think, well, first of all, there's EB-5 has been a very successful tool and has created a lot of economic development in many states across the country. So there's bipartisan support for it. The uh, House and Senate uh, members who have seen that in their own districts see the benefit of that. And I think many of them would like to probably you know, leave it alone. However, there are other, other folks in the country where they really thought EB-5 would come through in terms of rural development, and, and it didn't. And so they're advocating heavily for, for having this uh, increase in, in fees go up. And, I think there's also a misnomer that people who invest in EB-5 are fabulously wealthy and just have to sell a Rolls-Royce to afford it, and it's, it's not the case. I can tell you that all 40 investors that we have currently in our project have really put their money together as almost any other uh, middle-level income uh, family would do. That's, that's actually very interesting insight. You know, a lot of our listeners, uh, viewers, and a lot of the people who would be uh, perhaps calling in later on uh, are perhaps in that middle income um, bracket. So it's interesting to know what the, um, uh, you know, creative solutions have been. So listeners and viewers, thank you so much for joining us today. We've been speaking with Pete Che, CEO of the Regional Center Columbia International Finance. It's um, so nice to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and we will be here uh, again next Friday at 10 o'clock in the morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Goodbye. This is Tamina Talks Immigration, and this is Tamina Watson.